right. Well, so Gunner, we we got uh, you remember Mohana from a a, pre, a couple episodes ago, right? I do, man. That was fun. That was fun. Yeah. Well, guess what? She's back. All right. Yeah. Hey, Mohana. Hey, how are you? Good. So, for people that aren't familiar with Mohana, uh, she's at uh, uh, NextGov and is a reporter there, and. Uh, um, we had a, a great time talking with her many episodes ago about uh, some of the reporting she did on with the CIA about how they were open up, opening up things. And I, I ran into her uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she's like, yeah, you got to get me back on the show. So, so here she is. So welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. Yeah. So what, what have you been working on lately? Well, today I wrote a story about um, deep web search. Uh, there's a company here called Giant Oak. Um, it was founded a couple of years ago. It's based in Arlington. And uh, the idea is they are selling a sort of search technology, um, not only to federal agencies, but also to, uh, they tend to have a lot of customers in the commercial um, sector, especially in uh, finance. And the idea is the search tool is tailored specifically for finding people. And the company has a lot of um, behavioral analytics, people who specialize in um, the various fields that their customers are specializing in. So let's say ICE might be using it to, uh, to find people who overstay their visas. So this company, Giant Oak, will talk to analysts who specialize in that and say, what kinds of factors might actually identify someone who's overstaying their visa? So instead of just searching for, you know, person's name plus visa or person's mm -hmm. name plus violation, um, it might surface uh, factors like people who tend to violate visas tend to be in this place or they tend to um, do this kind of thing or, you know, uh, factors that aren't ne are not necessarily associated with, you know, the text um, in a search, mm. in, in a in traditional search. So uh, okay. it was interesting to learn about that. It, apparently the system uh, will learn based on what anal analysts say is useful to them. So it's kind of this, this uh, machine learning um, approach to search. Yeah. So where, where do they get their inputs from? So um, I guess they just describe it as sort of the deep web. So whatever uh, Google is not traditionally indexing. So it's well, it is indexing, but it might be the, the way the CEO describes it as what might be returned, you know, 10 pages in. So uh, it's really okay. just, um, you know, it's uh, just, you know, anything that you wouldn't normally be looking at if you're doing Google search. It's sort of this amorphous, you know, the majority of the Internet is not really what you can find on it on Google. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I could imagine that would be like obviously useful for law enforcement and, mm -hmm. and probably even commercial applications ranging from maybe assessing insurance risk or um, like online dating maybe to like background <laughs> check somebody. Right, right. I, it's definitely possible. There are lots, lots and lots of applications for this kind of technology. But he said the, the founder, Gary Schiffman, was saying he's specifically interested in, in tracking down individuals, even though this, this principle could be applied to really anything. But he's interested in finding people, and that's where the behavioral analytics comes in. Because if you need to find somebody, you sort of need to understand their behavior, the factors that determine where they might be. Um, so uh, he sort of thinks that search um, should be approached that way um, instead mm -hmm. of just considering search something that's purely text-based. That's interesting. Are they thinking only about kind of past behavior, or are they also thinking in a predictive way? Because that, that would be the switch for me that flips it from potentially useful to extremely creepy. It's a good question. Um, as as far as we haven't talked about that, I, mm -hmm. as far as I know, they're not thinking about predictive right now, and um, I'm sure that's a conversation that they would have to have with their their customers as well. But right. um, I think the next the next frontier he was talking about is switching um, is sort of pivoting away from the text based search, where 
Um, you know, still whatever information they're looking at has a lot to do with text, even if the factors they're looking for are different. So he, he gave this example about, um, you know, for drug trafficking, you might look for the person's name next to the word cocaine or something like that. And he's saying, you know, the, maybe what's more relevant isn't that uh, you should be looking for mentions of cocaine, but you should be looking for other factors that might sort of be a, a less lesser known correlation. And so um, he was saying it's it's possible to pivot away from that text and, and start doing things like image searches. So mm -hmm. you might be able to upload someone's image and then find information about them based on that. Um, but he thinks that's kind of the next frontier. They're, I, apparently they're working on technology related to that. So. Yeah, because that, that's very different than the classic Google search where the right. value in the search results are the number of people that, that link to a particular asset. Mm -hmm. um, but like you said, it's like if maybe you get like a person standing in front of like a couple uh, kilos of co cocaine or something and then you do image analysis to you know tie the two together, that's very sure. different from how you link. Right, right. Yeah, um, I, this is the first time I'm really writing about um, deep web, so I'm very new to the field, but um, the, the sense that I get based on conversations with him and other people who are customers of this kind of technology is that um, that they're, they're trying to re-envision what it means to really search for something. It's really just not, people have this concept of searching for someone on Google, but it, it, the, what Google is able to call and also the, the methods by which it searches are fairly limited, um, Google mm -hmm. and any other traditional search engine that a consumer might use. Um, so people are trying to really just change that around so that uh, information can be processed and serviced in a more efficient way. So I wonder what's, I wonder what's harder, uh, the collection of the corpus that you need to analyze, right? Because basically they're, in order to do the work that they're doing, they would, they have to like reroll a, like an internet wide, uh, index, right. They have, sure. have to yep. build their own. Right. So that sounds, so that already sounds hard. And then the other hard thing that they're doing is actually putting these kind of handcrafted, industry-specific algorithms together or kind of problem-specific algorithms together to do all the machine learning and whatever they, they need to do on that side. And I wonder which challenge for them is, is greater. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure which they would say is greater, but I think um, the, the founder would probably say that the, the handcrafted aspect of it is what makes it more unique. Um, right. He was saying he's, he's not aware of other um, technology that, that it incorporates human knowledge as much and subject matter expertise as much. Um, so that's kind of where he sees uh, this company getting an edge is really just that they have people who specialize in, in searching for, um, you know, drug traffickers or whatever. Um, and so they're able to identify just based on their own experience, what um, factors might be related to a person without it being, you know, the term cocaine or whatever, right. you know, without, without being obvious. Was, was there any was there any discussion? He he asked almost certainly no, already knowing the answer of like the moral or like ethical implications of the work. Like, did is that kind of acknowledged as part of their their value proposition? Um, we we didn't discuss it, so I can't answer for him. But <laughs> sure, um, yeah, okay. No. <laughs> um, I, I I will pose him the question. and I'll come back to you. Okay, all right, yeah. Because that that is interesting. Because that's one of the things that I've been seeing with with AI of of like uh, with the ethics of AI and. I think it was a couple enterprises articles, and I'll throw them into the show notes that talk about, um, you know, how you how like how AI can get things wrong, and maybe like almost how people uh, subconsciously program in biases, or mm -hmm. um, and and maybe it does reflect the way things are, but not the way you want things to be. Like like for instance, like with my daughter. Uh, uh, wanting to go into computer science and with only 15% girls in computer science and everything, you know, you may want the, the reality of the results may be more male dominated, but 
everybody wants to change that to make it a little bit more reflective of society in general. And so AI would end up, it it depends on whether you do it right or wrong or how you define what right or wrong is, but um, you may put in certain things to get you the results that you want, but but it may be in a, uh, I I, I don't know if unethical would be the right way or racist way or, or, you know, biased way that uh, it's, it's crazy. I think, <laughs> well, I think I think the word you're looking for, Dave, is amoral, right? In, in other words, yes. it's it's not making a moral judgment one way or another. So it's kind of literally yeah. without morals, which in itself yeah. is potentially immoral. Well, <laughs> I, I noticed the, the White House and the FTC have recently <clears throat> put out a handful of reports about um, this. I I think what you're talking about in a different way. So sort of the um, the potential downsides or the dark sides of big data or, or algorithms that process patterns as they were, but um, and, and sort of analyze and predict based on those patterns. Um, and yes, a, a lot of it might be based sort of on fact, but um, the question is whether these newer algorithms that are based on historical data um, have the capability to influence the future if, and, and sort of influence the way people process or, or think about what's going to happen in the future. So you can look at historical data and maybe assume that you know people who do X have XYZ characteristics, but... The question is whether it's possible to change that, and the, and if um, if you're predicting things in the future, um, you know, should you really be considering that historical data as the only source of information? Um, but I think it's something that um, the FTC and the, the White House have been very aware of and vocal about in the past couple of months, at least. I've seen a lot of um, writing and workshops related to this this uh, sort of tension between using historical data and making sure that the algorithms that that are uh, based on this data are actually aware of their inherent biases. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Are, are the, the and this may be a cul-de-sac, and and if so, we can we can not follow it. But I, I wonder if the, if the White House and the FTC are think about this as something important to do. I wonder what kind of tools they have at their disposal in order to make the change or kind of promulgate some policy change. So, uh, are there are they contemplating kind of a regulatory intervention, or are they just trying to use a bully pulpit in order to convince the industry to to set some guidelines down? It's a good question. I haven't heard that much about regulation at all. I think at this Mm -hmm. point, it's really just sort of acknowledgement in the past. um, I've been seeing a lot of uh, discussion related to this in the past, you know, let's say half a year or something. But I think um, the reports have been coming out surfacing these concerns for the past couple of years, and I haven't really seen it lead to anything. So I think it's really just sort of a wake. It's meant to be a wake up call to companies that um, are processing large large amounts of data. So any company um, like, you know, anything related to uh, credit scores or something like that, or any, any uh, insurance, things like that, just um, any company that is, is harvesting a lot of data and sort of acting on it. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of reminding them to be aware of the biases that might be sort of encoded into the algorithms that they're using. Right. Um, but that's kind of where I see it stopping. I'm not really sure that it's leading to any um, solid, uh, tangible yeah. policy goals. Because what I've got in my mind right now is, have you seen the first episode of the third season of uh, Black, Black Mirror? Mirror? Yeah. Oh, okay. don't, don't yeah. ruin it. Don't ruin it. I got <laughs> okay, okay. to see that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if the, yeah, if the last five minutes were interesting to you as a listener of this podcast, then I encourage you to pause this podcast, go watch that episode <laughs> of Black Mirror, and then come back to the conversation. Um, right. That was, yeah, because that's, that's, that's the logical extension of what's mm-hmm. happening today without... Uh, without putting some guardrails in place, right? Um, this thing right. where basically your your uh, your Facebook ranking or your Google ranking becomes it begins to influence your ability to like rent a car, right? Um, right. Yeah. 
it's kind of chilling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe that is what will happen if uh, if no one stops it. So, <laughs> but I, but I think people are starting to become aware of those risks. So mm -hmm. uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with that information. Maybe maybe there's nothing you really can do. I'm not sure. Yeah. So speaking of autonomous algorithms um, uh, <laughs> and potentials for black black mirror episodes. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it was Dave. You had some news on the on the on the Uber front, didn't you? Well, when Mohana and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we we're talking about driverless cars and them being all the rage. And um, it was, I was, you know, Mohana is from Pittsburgh and I'm from Western Pennsylvania. So it's like really cool to see um, driverless cars showing up in Pittsburgh. And I, I think that that would be a harder problem than say like, uh, like more of a city that's on like a grid, uh, like Akron or something like that. Um, but um, I thought that was interesting. And, and, um, but the other thing I learned was that, uh, Mohana, you don't have a driver's license. Well, I, I do have or, a driver's license, you, but yeah, it's you expired. Have you, yeah, <laughs> well, but you, you don't have a desire to drive. No, I don't. I, I was able, I grew That's up right. uh, close enough. I, I grew up in the city and I grew up close enough to everything I needed. So I never really had to drive. I walked, you know, to my high school or I got a ride with somebody else. And generally there's, there's a bus system, so I didn't really need to drive. Um, I got my license just so that I could have an ID to show people. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so this seems like a perfect thing. You know, if I lived in Pittsburgh, then I would have less of a problem <laughs> uh, yeah. than I did in the past. Yeah. So you, and so to me, it's interesting as somebody that, um, you know, like you live in a big city and the need to drive is way lessened and, you know, the popularity with Uber. And that's very different, at least for me, that it's like I'm out in the middle of Ohio where it's like you have to have a car. I mean, there's like Uber around here, but it's not that plentiful. Um, yeah. But what are your thoughts on the, the driverless cars versus uh, just a plain old like Uber car? Uh, so I think as a consumer, I it would take me a while to get used to it. I think I would. I would take it. I actually have been trying to take it. Uh, to try, I'm hoping that a driverless car would pick me up in Pittsburgh, and every single time it was a human being <laughs> driving. Um, but uh, apparently there aren't really that many of them circulating, So, and it's just sort of it depends on if, if one is available. Um, but as a consumer, I think I would feel very uncomfortable if I knew mm -hmm. that, um, that, that, that there wasn't actually a driver in control. And at this point, I think in the pilot stage, Uber is still sending out, I think, two um, trained uh, drivers in the car. So if anything happens, they can take over control very, very quickly. Um, so that is comforting to me, but I imagine that's not really the end goal. They're really hoping that, you know, one day a car will just show up and you'll get in and that's it. Um, there will be no one there. Um, but at this point, um, I, I'm not sold on it. I would rather have a person in the car with me. <laughs> I'd rather have a person driving. Well, I, it makes yeah. me think about the uh, airline pilots, right? And how uh, the widespread use of autopilot has kind of inured them to the actual act of piloting an airplane. Um, not inured was the right word. Um, it, it basically, it's hard to pay attention for an eight hour flight. Right. Um, sure. and it's even harder to pay attention when you have a computer doing the work 95% of the time. Um, mm -hmm. and so basically they wake up to land and take off and everything else is, is kind of the machine takes care of it for them. Um, and I know that there's a lot of kind of human machine interaction study that goes into the design of the cockpits to um, ensure that they can kind of maintain awareness um, so that when they do have to intervene, they can, they can kind of do so quickly and kind of quickly get themselves oriented to uh, what state everything is in. I'm going to take a wild guess that we're, they're not doing that level of 
design in these autonomous Uber cars, right? <laughs> so, right. And and potentially even look. I mean, there's a there's a a good incentive to have the same person in that seat for like 12 hours, right? Because they're actually not working that hard. Um, mm-hmm. And so right. I wonder I wonder about like how useful a safeguard that might be because you know kind of spacing out for a little bit and then suddenly waking up to realize there's a kid with a tricycle in front of you. Um, yeah. You know, that, that, that doesn't seem like a recipe for success, I guess, as a safety measure. I don't know. And just having read about it in, in, a, in a handful of articles that have been coming out, um, uh, Brian Fung uh, from the Washington Post had gone there and the courts had a pretty good story also about uh, just what it actually looks like in practice. And I think in those descriptions, uh, the drivers, the Uber employees who are sitting in the front are still very much paying attention to what's going on. They can't yeah. take over, if, especially if they were they were about to encounter some pedestrians, I think, in one scenario, and the driver took over mm-hmm. um, instead of just letting the, the car do what it would. So uh, especially, I would worry about actually testing in the real world. Um, you know, you can do as much testing as you want in a closed environment, but when you actually have to let the thing go and, do, and, and see what it does when it encounters a kid crossing the street. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's the most terrifying part. Um, and I would hate to be a driver in that car, a passenger in that car as well. Oh yeah. Well, and also I, I think with the, the, the drivers that are in the seat or the, the people that are the Uber people that are in the cars right now are probably more of the, whether they're engineers or computer scientists or whatever that are sitting there with a clipboard and they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're actually, they're kind of doing work, but, um, but I, to me, it's like for me to like, if it was my job to just sit behind the wheel and just wait for something to happen, I would just go insane because it would <laughs> right. just be, it would be so monotonous and you would daydream and it, for you to have any sort of attention at all. And um, I think, what was it, the, the Uber had like a tractor trailer, it was like a beer truck. And I, I forget it, maybe I read it wrong, but the driver was actually in the sleeper, sleeper part of the back for a good chunk mm-hmm. of it. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah. So it's like, even in a situation like that, when something gets, you know, somebody has to like wake up and get back down in there or something, um, that, you know, by then the accident has already happened. So it's really, there's a small set of circumstances that are maybe non-emergency circumstances. But I think Pittsburgh is actually a pretty good place to test it out because there are so many challenges and there's such a wide yeah. range of, um, terrain, lots of hills. Um, and I think the courts article, um, uh, mentioned an intersection that is, very familiar to me because I grew up not far from there. Um, yeah. That's a one-way street, and the car was uh, turning up in the wrong direction on the one-way street. Um, and I'm not sure what, at what point it realized that, but uh, I think there are lots of really strange... <laughs> well, um, there, there's a microphone in there that listens for screaming. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not a very busy street, so maybe it yeah. never really did encounter any yeah. <laughs> screaming. But um, I, I, it's uh, just... I think Pittsburgh, having driven very minimally in Pittsburgh, it's challenging for human beings. I think it's probably a good place uh, for a driverless car to test out um, every possible scenario and every possible type of weather as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and I've seen things, too, where um, like there there's been talk about like was it the the Tesla cars of being uh, being able to drive by themselves and everything. And um, I wonder if that's like almost like a sideway to make your car payment by it's like you have your car drop you off at work and then it goes off and, and like earns fares by picking people up and dropping them off and all that. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that possibility, but (laughs) it makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. Yeah. But I can also imagine people just like trashing the car and leaving like bags of McDonald's stuff under the seat and stuff like that. That would just be kind of gross. And I don't know how you police that. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, that's well, a good by, point. I'll think about that. Yeah, but like, well, like five star ratings, right? It's a oh no, they got, that was a one star passenger, right? They'll, they'll never. Well, get a fare but again. how do you know? How do you know if? Oh, well, because I guess maybe because you the, have the yeah, the, the, you have the, the next person rate the well, first person. That would be cheaper than my solution, which was uh, have a little remote camera in the car that you can monitor that's what from I was your from desk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. No, there are there are cameras uh, like in the in the videos we saw. There were cameras that you could see the passenger and 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 all that. But but all, probably to rate the cleanliness of the previous passenger would be something you would want to rate. Um, you know, for the next passenger to say that oh they trashed the place and you know who the person was so you could go after them or whatever if they mm-hmm. if they like, threw up in there or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other industry I hadn't thought about. Yeah. <laughs> the monitoring of the previous passenger. Yeah. Well, and the remote yeah. cleanup crews, right? Because you don't want to have to drive. You don't want the car to have to drive back to your work and then you got to take your lunch break cleaning the car out. Like right. you actually want somebody. You know, you want the car to go drive to a place that's going to go detail the car and send it back. Uh, the whole economy, everything's going to be different. It's all going to be different. <laughs> let me, let me, yeah. I wonder about this, though. So I, let me check my bias here because uh, my feelings about Uber are well documented. Um, I find mm-hmm. them just like skeezy as a company. Um, and that's kind of translate, that translates into my level of trust in their algorithms and their ability to actually pull this off. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't let them pay me to get into an autonomous Uber vehicle. Um, however, I am perfectly happy getting into a Google vehicle, right? Because they seem to deliver my mail on time and uh, I, I generally get search results when I want them. So I just assume that they're also going to be able to deliver me a, a car experience without too much injury or death. Um, mm. Is that a, is that, a, is that a good bet on my part? Am I being naive? I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I think it probably all depends upon, you know, it's brand loyalty and everything. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that dislike uh, Google, right, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So I don't, what do you think, Mohana? Well, I, I, I've been thinking about this. Um, I, I guess I would make that decision based on my satisfaction with the service, less, <laughs> which sounds strange. I, I also disagree with a lot of things I've heard about Uber, especially there was something that hit very close to home when they're, uh, one of their executives uh, said they were tracking like a journalist or something who, mm-hmm. um, you know, had, had made some comments that they didn't like. So I know they've said a lot of things. I'm not sure what's true or not, but my satisfaction with the service has been pretty good. And so in that regard, I would trust their algorithm. Um, but I, as in, I'm not sure that any of their, um, their like skeeziness or, you know, ethical concerns are coded into the algorithm or not coded that way. Um, yeah. But I don't know. Well, it, but it could be like the top down culture would, possibly have you know like if if that's the culture would people be more likely to cut corners with Mm. safety and well yeah i mean that's a great point i'm just not sure that i got the impression that they were cutting corners i got the sense some some of the people there weren't you know weren't great people (laughs) but i but i would separate those two things i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah maybe i'm the naive naive one in this case but yeah (laughs) All right. And so I know that uh, you've been uh, – I know an article you wrote a little while ago was about we, we have a new federal uh, chief information security officer. We do, yes. He, um, yeah. he started guy. fairly late in the game. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he, he seems to think that he's going to be around for longer than until the end of this administration. So um, I, I'm not sure why he's so confident about that, but uh, apparently he thinks he'll have more than enough time to implement some of his plans. So we'll see. We'll keep an eye on that. So, yeah. so that, that was a question that I had is that was a question that I had, which was what is creating a CISO? What does that do in terms of, I mean, again, I, I can see like a bully pulpit aspect to it, but um, we've been trying to solve this problem for a very long time. And what is the creation mm-hmm. of the CISO as a position 
well, what does that actually do? Are there um, policy changes, um, law changes that that set this, this person up for success? Um, I get the sense that it's really just posturing. So it's really mm-hmm. just um, after the OPM hack and a lot of attention had been drawn to vulnerabilities in federal IT, they uh, wanted to make big top-down changes. But um, I, I'm not convinced that any of the proposals so far, I mean, there's been like IT modernization proposals and things like that. But other than that, I mean, there haven't really been talks about large scale policy change. Um, yeah. and, and I think in the cybersecurity national action plan and discussions, um, about creating this position, it wasn't exactly clear what this person would do from a policy perspective, mm-hmm. um, other than, um, a lot of information security responsibilities broadly would fall under their purview, but, um, it's sort of unclear what that means. Um, and even in the first few, um, public appearances that Greg, uh, Tohill has made the, the kinds of things he's talking about are very, very general. Um, so I'm not really sure um, if he has plans later for more uh, specific or targeted programs. Um, maybe he's just sort of outlining this at the beginning of his tenure. Um, but it's to me, it seems like it's very much just uh, the federal government trying to make it clear that they're taking cybersecurity seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, you know, we can't really you can't make bets on it. It's still there are right. still plenty of vulnerabilities to be exploited. So, and, and if, and if um, nothing else, sure. yeah, if, I mean, and if nothing else, they've now got somebody who can full time go testify at the Hill, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which might be what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. But with this, does this position, like we're saying, like a bully pulpit and everything, I mean, they could, he could make recommendations, but a lot of times when you have CISOs, CISOs in a company would have the authority to say no to things and, and have things not go online and would, the CISO have that authority at the federal level? It's a good question. I'm not sure that he would in the in the sense that I, I don't think that the Cybersecurity National Action Plan is that specific about the responsibilities or the privileges of the CISO. Um, so I could be wrong, but as far as, as far as I can tell in my reporting, this is just um, a sort of a broad, this is just sort of assigning the responsibility of federal, uh, of, of White House, of being the person in the White House who uh, oversees information security, but but other than that, there, there are people at various agencies who are going to be overseeing what's going on at those agencies. So I think it's more setting the tone uh, mm-hmm. more than anything else and maybe running some sort of councils, um, advisory boards, things like that. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of it is it tends to be messaging, as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. um, versus actual policy. Yes. Yeah. And one, one of the interesting quotes that you had in your article that I saw was uh, – he said that uh, I don't want to spend ten bucks guarding a five dollar piece of information. I want to go out there and have proportional defense. Uh, right. Yeah. And to me, it's like that sounds reasonable, but a lot of times it's that five dollar device is the thing that gets compromised. So you think about like all that the uh, Mirai botnet that was comprised that took out a bunch of the internet the other week, mm-hmm. and it's comprised of a bunch of IoT devices. And um, you know, to me, it's like if if you're not protecting the 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 weak things, then then that means it um, that gives a toehold for an attacker to get in and do big damage. Yeah, and uh, I don't know enough about um, cybersecurity. It's not really my beat that much, but I don't know enough about it to know how controversial what he's saying is. Um, but I think the sense that I got is he was saying um, broadly that um, that sort of the federal government needs to have a better sense of what information it has. Um, and so maybe um, less on the device side, but more just sort of realizing that there's some, you know, public information that requires less um, 
uh, you know, focus and less investment um, yeah. because that information is already public <laughs> versus something that's very highly sensitive. And I think he yeah. was saying that a lot of people in the government don't really even know what information they have in their own databases and in a particular mm -hmm. agency. So they can't really make decisions about what is worth an investment and what isn't. Right. Um, but but I, I'm not sure uh, how good an approach that is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose I can imagine it, it, there's some obvious stuff like, you know, public information, probably we don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that stuff. But then once you get, once you get past the easy stuff and you get into the, um, I think what he's suggesting is that we should be able to, um, we should be able to have much more nuanced kind of policy and technological tools for protecting information, depending on what its classification is for lack of a better term. Um, mm -hmm. The trick with this though, it seems like is that the value is entirely in context, right? So if I'm evaluating an IOT device in terms of the, uh, the, the video images that are coming in from the camera, I'm going to apply one set of criteria. But if I treat that camera as a platform on which somebody could launch a distributed dental lab service attack, I'm going to take a completely different approach to how I lock that right. machine down. Right. Um, and I just don't, my brain is not big enough to understand how you could model in all of the possible threat vectors. Right. Uh, sure. It's, that seems hard. It seems hard. Yeah. Like that $5 piece of information could be worth much more in conjunction with other you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. less valuable piece of information. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, especially if these, uh, especially if the folks we were talking about 20 minutes ago get a hold of it, right? That's it. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then the other thing that you mentioned in the article was a uh, cyber mascot. Yeah, he. Um, one of the things he talked about was uh, trying to get school kids to come up with their own, uh, sort of come up with a description of what a cyber mascot would be. He calls it Byte, B-Y-T-E. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's an effort to get kids at a very young age to be aware of cyber risks in the same way that, you know, Smokey the Bear talks about uh, forest fires and there's McGruff the Crime Dog and um, there are all these, um, these like public safety awareness characters that are meant to get kids, uh, to sort of teach kids and sort of ingrain in their brain. Um, you know, don't share your passwords or whatever thing. Um, so it's an interesting idea, but it's it was just kind of funny to me that that's that's one of the <laughs> the main things he talked about in one of his uh, very early public appearances is really just focusing on students. Um, what I would think that the bigger concern is the potential shortage of cyber talent in the federal government. Um, well, yeah, but... <laughs> and maybe maybe that is a a, a very long range approach it, you know think looking at it optimistically right where it's like if you can get the cybersecurity awareness at an early age maybe the next generation of, of students that come up you know that'll help fill that gap give, you know like how you said that we we do have a big cybersecurity employment gap right now and it's going right. to get worse yeah. yeah i think that's true i'm sure that that is what the the motivation is here um and there are lots of other efforts to um, invest in cyber education at the elementary and high school level, um, which I guess will, those kids will be getting jobs, you know, decades from now. <laughs> uh, so it, it does seem like a very long range approach, um, but, but, yeah. uh, but I'm sure it's worth the effort. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I am, I'm not convinced. I think uh, I can, however, get behind this proposal hundred percent. If he's the one in the suit, I'm, I'm totally behind that. <laughs> If he, if he, yeah, if he it, does, it's if not it, even really clear what what bite is. Like, <laughs> I don't know if it's like an animal or like what what would that be, or is yeah. it just like just a representation of a bite? I don't know. I don't, but, oh, it's yeah. it's a it's a it's a Chinese wireless camera. That's what it is. It's right. Like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> I guess 
these are the questions that the elementary school kids will be answering for us. <laughs> right. Right. And, and Gunnar, we're still waiting. We, we need to get a hold of Murray and Duffy to get that Encrypty the Bear uh, drawing for us that yeah. looks like Dan Walsh. That's right. right. Encrypty the Bear. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So podcast recommendations. Let's get, let's get to this. This is going to be fun. <laughs> uh, should we just get into it? I yeah, let's, yeah, let's just get into it. Let's do it. Okay. All right. Um, I listen to probably like a hundred podcasts, so sort of all over the place, but a bunch of my top favorite ones. I love Reply All. Um, I listen to it all the time and I, it has that very like, you know, NPR, like a lot of the same voices that you would hear on Planet Money or um, This American Life, a uh, very familiar way of talking and storytelling, but they tell stories about the internet. Um, so they might have episodes about, they had one about, um, an Orthodox Jewish guy who discovered, mm-hmm. um, AOL and was able to connect with a whole group of people outside the community that he grew up in. Um, and that was a really fascinating two part episode just about, um, a person's relationship with, um, the outside world. And as he's trying to figure out what it means, um, at, totally facilitated by the fact that he found a computer and was able to discover chat rooms with people who, um, uh, were outside of his community. Um, but it ranges from things like that to, you know, they had one about someone who uh, discovered a, t- a person on Tinder who had a, their profile picture was taken in their apartment. So the, the person who discovered this photo was really flummoxed because they come across this user whose profile picture is a photo of them with a dog, with a dog in their own apartment. <laughs> and so the whole episode <laughs> is just sort of like tracing what could have happened? How, how did this come about? So they're very loosely connected, but every single time um, there's some element of it that has to do with the internet. And even beyond that, it's just, it's uh, human beings relationship with the internet versus the nitty gritty of how the internet works or how these apps work. So I think it's a really fascinating, well done uh, podcast. Yeah. Um, so I, you turned me on to that and I've been, I can't stop listening to it, but the, for or like our listeners, if if they were to pick one to get started, I recommend um, episode number sixty nine, uh, uh, where they talk about um, there was a uh, a company called Kick uh, K I K um, that um, there there was also uh, I think it was an NPM library called uh, Kick that was developed by some other person, and uh, so Kick the company reached out to the person and did I think it was like a cease and desist. Uh, on on that person saying, "Hey, take your library down," and it wound up that the guy was like, "Like the heck with you, I'm you know." And then it's like, uh, "I'm out of here." So not only did he like delete that library, he deleted all the other libraries he put on npm, which basically took out like a whole bunch of the internet of like all kind of things. Um, so I, I thought that was like a whole that was fascinating there where, you know, you have all these open source libraries are sitting out there. And what happens if the owner of that library just goes in and deletes it? And what happens to the rest of the Internet? Right. Yeah. That, I just re-listened to that episode, actually. And I think it was really cool that they, they do also involve sort of the human element, because a lot of the reason that uh, the, some of those packages were deleted is sort of just a, a feud, <laughs> you know, like a personal <laughs> feud. Um, so it's. I, I really love the way they, they humanize the discussions of technology. Yeah, and I, and I really enjoy the way that they take internet culture, which is like almost totally impenetrable um, unless you're kind of <laughs> steeped in it. Um, mm-hmm. And they do, to, and they do, they do. Uh, they have that. Uh, they have that bit where they do the yes, yes, no, um, right. where their boss doesn't understand something on Twitter, and then the two of them, uh, you know, walk him all the way through the whole history of you know that particular meme or that particular photo, um, and finally give him the context he needs to understand the message. Uh, and 
it's it's the way that they take uh, this opaque internet culture, ground it in something human, um, and then make it something that somebody can connect to genuinely. Is just it's extraordinary how not only how well they do it, but how how consistently they do it in every episode. It's just it's wonderful. And every single time they've, I, I don't think I've ever fully under, for the yes yes no segment. I don't think I've ever been able to, to fully say that I understood any of the things that they brought up, and I am pretty much steeped all the time in internet culture. <laughs> so I think <laughs> That's right. they, yeah. they're pretty good at choosing things that um, that are surprising and uh, and interesting for that segment. So highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, what what else do you got? Plenty. Um, so I've been like <laughs> I've been listening to um, Product Hunt. Um, so. Product Hunt will like surface new apps or things in the beta stage or whatever. So it might be a podcast or like a website or a book or anything. It's sort of um, category agnostic. But they have this podcast where they get a bunch of really um, high profile, fascinating tech startup people um, and they just talk to them for an hour. Um, so there's one episode that Product Hunt had with one of the founders of Rap Genius. Um, and that was really interesting, not only because I find the platform itself really interesting um, mm-hmm. and, and actually um, relevant to media, um, you know, publications will have started using rap geniuses platform, like the genius platform to sort of annotate like speeches, like the Washington post will use it to annotate speeches and things like this and clarify, um, or fact check or things like that. Um, so I recommend, um, that and many other episodes of, uh, product hunt. And then, um, there's ventured, which is, um, the kind of Perkins podcast, um, the Ezra Klein show. Um, I really yeah. love that because it's like, just like an hour long, discussion which ranges from the personal to um sort of theoretical with lots of people um i i recommend the david chang episode who's the restaurateur um i think that one's really interesting um just to, to hear like what kinds of books he's reading where he gets his ideas things like that um another one i love which is not really tech related is called song exploder um yeah. and this have you heard that one yeah oh yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, the the host, um, Rishikesh Herway, will just talk to one person about or to an artist about one song and just every layer of, you know, why did you this instrument or like what does what what do the lyrics mean here? Why did you decide to put this effect in? And they'll break it down layer by layer. And then at the end of it, they'll they'll say the whole song for you. Um, mm. So I think that's another really fascinating one that, um, that I could listen to forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then um yeah, plenty, plenty more like uh, WPF with Mark Marin, um, the A16Z podcast. I love, um, and then you know everyone listens to ninety nine percent invisible or invisibilia things like that. But um, I try to get at least one episode of every major podcast in. So plenty <laughs> thought, more. But... See, you mentioned the Ezra Klein show. I thought you were also going to mention uh, the weeds. So I listen to the weeds every so often, but um, it really is in the weeds to the point where sometimes <laughs> it's just too detailed. So I don't know if I would recommend it to um, to everybody to listen to every day. Um, but I mean, I think it's, it's it's useful, but especially for topics that you are interested in. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And uh, on Song Exploder, um, I can recommend the episode with uh, John Roderick, uh, where he explains. Uh, his song about the Challenger disaster, uh, the commander something something, um, where he it's a it, the heart the song is heartbreaking, um, and he spends a half hour talking about the the actual mechanics of putting the song together, and it's just it it, it actually just enriches your appreciation of the songs that they explode right. It's it's great, right? Mm-hmm. 
Another great one is uh, the Bob's Burgers episode. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the theme song, but it's just really like catchy, like playful ukulele based theme song. And he talks to um, the the guy, who, the, the creator is actually the one who wrote the theme song. And he just walks the listener through, you know, why I chose this instrument and why I wanted it to have this effect, um, this sort of like playful, whimsical effect and things like that. I thought it was really fascinating. So recommend that one, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's it for now. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I can come up with more, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, we'll we'll save a couple more for next time we have you on. Um, yeah. But this is a good start for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the other thing is like what, like as as a reporter, what are some of the things that uh, like advice that you have for our listeners as far as whether it's life hacks or getting people to respond to you or um, meeting hygiene or anything like that? I know that's that's always a, a popular. Um, uh, those types of things are really popular with our uh, audience. Okay. So, um, in terms of life hacks, I think my biggest challenge in my job is getting people to respond to me. So, (laughs) um, it's especially, uh, people in government tend to, uh, immediately delete or ignore (laughs) messages from journalists. Um, so I have realized that one of the most important things is to actually, um, meet people in person and then send them an email shortly thereafter, just reminding them who you are. And then in, in the email that you send later, when you actually have a press request, um, to mention that in the subject of the email, like, by the way, we met at this event. (laughs) Um, so I think at, at least I'm not sure if this applies to other industries, but, um, for me, getting people to respond has a lot to do with just being personal and just reminding them of our personal connection versus our professional one. Um, just because there's so much, you know, distrust and mistrust between, um, the, the press and the, the government or even industry, just the press and anyone else, um, mm-hmm. you, you sort of have to convince them in subtle ways that you're not out to get them. Um, mm-hmm. And so sometimes um, if the email is a little bit too formal, then people tend to think that they're going to have to answer really uncomfortable questions or that, um, you know, everything is going to be on the record, you know, that you know, their the email is going to be on the record, things like that. So um, you sort of have to strike the right balance of being professional, but also being um, a person or appearing to be a person <laughs> that um, you know, is willing to talk to them about, you know, maybe we'll talk on background or off the record or things like that. You know, it's really it's really not about making you look bad. So I think um, my advice for anyone who's who's trying to get someone to respond to them is just be careful of being too formal and, and appearing um, or sort of giving them the, giving them the wrong impression that you're out to get them. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I have to remember all the time. <laughs> yeah. And that's it's to me, I think there are a lot of parallels between that and people that are in sales where it's right. like, you know, yeah. who wants to talk to a salesman, you know, and, right. and it's and it's even though they're like even like at Red Hat, I, I would argue that our sales reps are they're out. They're literally there to help people. And and make it make the customers' lives easier as opposed to like people that are just out to like like clean somebody out and and it's sad that in, I think in the same way with the like where you have people in the press that have just I'm sure just burned people and then they have a bad taste in their mouth with with right. the press people get that way with sales and it's like and then having to like you said build that relationship I think is critical to get people to respond to say look no I'm not here to hose you over or anything like that we're we're here to work together. Right. And I think another um, another important element is I realize people are more likely to respond if you frame it in a way that makes them feel good about themselves. So if you ask someone, even if, if you're not really planning to treat or you're not looking to someone to be an expert, to give an expert opinion on something, but you you ask them to um, to weigh in on a story because they do have some experience with it versus saying, you know, I 
I, I noticed that you were involved in this in this like scandal or something like that. It's more, um, uh, you know, I would like to get your perspective on something, your insight or something like that. Um, people tend to, even though it really means the same thing, people tend to reframe it a little. Um, if you are, if you present it that way and you're really just trying to gather information, you're not trying to, um, you know, paint anyone in a bad light. It's, I mean, it's true. That is what we're trying to do, but people sometimes have a hard time, um, because they've been burned or whatever, uh, trusting the press. Um, but, but if you're able to reframe it in a way that makes it seem like, you know, you really are helping each other, like, you know, I need help from you. I need you to elucidate something for me or, you know, shed some light on this or share your expertise. Then people are way more likely to respond. Yeah. Uh, I'm reminded that, uh, uh, Jen Krieger, who's, who's an agile coach, uh, who works with my team, um, she told me something really interesting, which is that um, as she's kind of judging uh, the quality of a meeting um, and how well a team is working together, the thing she listens for when the meeting starts is whether people are talking about non-work stuff at the start of the meeting. Um, and if they are, that's a really good indication that they're actually working closely together, that they're um, uh, that things are moving in the right direction. If the meeting starts immediately with business, um, that's actually... <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a bad sign, right? Uh, yeah, everybody's all lawyered up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And right. it's, a, it's a, yeah. very much like a, very much your your relationship with your sources, right? Like if you just got on the phone and be like, "Give me this information," um, it can't be like that, right? right? It has to be like, "How's your kids? How's the wedding?" You know, and then. Well, I noticed this in um, I listen to a lot of interview podcasts, many of which I mentioned. Like um, I think Ezra Klein and Mark Barron are two examples of really interesting and effective interviewers, and mm-hmm. I think they both do something that I think is really um, important, where they they open up to their sources, and if they they share some of their own sort of vulnerabilities mm-hmm. with the people that they're talking to, and I. I like to think that they're both very genuine people, but I'm sure it's partly calculated to make yeah. the person feel comfortable enough to share. And I think that applies on a smaller scale to um, to any journalist is really just if you're willing to appear a little bit vulnerable or a little human, then people are willing to do the same, even if, you know, they don't have to believe you. But, but <laughs> for whatever reason, yeah. they um, they let their guard down a little bit. And I think that's uh, I, I try to take cues from um, some, some of the, the most successful interviewers um like the two that i mentioned because i I think they really are expert in doing that and and just really making feel making people feel comfortable enough to share information with them that they wouldn't with other people so i've heard uh tim ferris say the exact same thing um and and it were it was two things one was it a lot of times what he'll do to get people to open up is like he will start off with an embarrassing story that about you know himself or something like that to make it to create like a safe space to show his vulnerability to get the other person to open up. And um, there's another thing that he does where um, from an interview technique, uh, instead of going right for the thing that you want to talk about, like let's say you want to interview somebody about uh, DevOps or something like that, and all they do is like DevOps talks all day long and everything. And if you um, lead right off with the DevOps part, they, their robot brain will just click in and then they'll just, uh, you know, just rattle stuff off and it's not very good. But if you find something that they're personally interested in and get them to talk about that up front, it, it right. like warms them up. And then, and then that allows you to have a, a richer conversation. Yeah, I think that's true. I've found, I've definitely found that in interviews with, um, with my sources too. If, if we start off even with a little bit of small talk or banter, just asking about, you know, the weather or, you know, how their family is or whatever, um, the, the answers you're likely to get are way better. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. It seems like such a minor change to make, but uh, if you're all business and the other person is likely to sort of tense up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, this is generalizable to 
all human interaction, right? Um, <laughs> just if you ran yeah. into somebody at a cocktail party and immediately jumped in, that would not go well. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, interestingly, like I, you know, being from somebody who's on the other end of the the reporter's uh, microphone, is that I've I've been you know told by people before is and I've been in these situations too where like a lot of times you'll have a reporter who's on a deadline and it's it's like you and so you get on the phone with them and you know conference call or whatever and then they ask a couple questions and they're like great good I'm done and then it's like they bail out like it's like. <laughs> And it's and you're like, okay, did I stink or whatever? And and the way people explained it to me is like, no, 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 these people are under incredible deadlines. They got to get so much content out, and it's like, don't take it personally if the reporter is like, you know, it's like they got what they wanted and they're moving on, and it's it's okay. Right. I, I mean, I think that's that's true. Sometimes we are under deadline, but when we have time for working on something a little longer term, like features. Um, something where you have the opportunity to develop a relationship with um, with your sources over the course of a couple of months or something like that. I think it's definitely important to make it clear to them that you consider them to be people and not just sources of information. But sometimes, you know, if you are under a deadline and someone hasn't been responding to you and finally yeah. you get them on the phone and, uh, you know, two hours after your deadline, sometimes it's hard <laughs> to, uh, to appear to be human at that point. But, yeah. Uh, but we're trying. <laughs> yeah. And, and to me, it's like once I knew that, I'm like, Okay, that's fine. No problem. I get it. You know, and it's right. it's like you. It's like I don't take it personally because it's like I understand that like the amount of the time pressures and and the level of content that that reporters have to generate is just phenomenal. Right. Yeah. It, it can definitely be a challenge. Um, and you know, I think we try to be as understanding as possible, but sometimes, uh, you know. It, sometimes it seems like people are specifically avoiding us when they know we're under deadline. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> sometimes it's hard not to take that personally, but we try not to. Yeah. So, so Mohana, th this is all great stuff. Um, and if, and if people wanted to get links to all of these podcasts and all this other great stuff uh, uh, that we talked about, what URL should we send them to? Uh, you should go to dgshow.org. Okay. All right. Well, great. Well, thanks a lot, Mohana, for joining us. Um, that's, sure. I'm really glad that, that you're able to make it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a ton of fun, as always. Mm -hmm.